I'm thinking. I'm a little discombobbled by uh, the worship this morning. It was so, really got to me, really got to me. And so there's a part of me that just wants to go right from those words in your presence. Because as we were singing that, I was thinking about how, Lord, we are always in your presence. And what a... What an astonishing thing to be before him, even as we are uh, in a special way when we gather together. There's something that relates very much to what we'll be looking at here in, uh, in the life of David. Last Sunday, we began learning to sing in the desert and uh, want very much to... Uh, to pick up where we left off uh, with a little bit of review this morning. But uh, the reason I'm kind of struggling is because I have this last chance here to tell you that uh, if you've been thinking about this marriage retreat, I hope you'll, you'll make, make that commitment and come. It's, uh, it's going to be significant, and I don't want you to miss out on that. I'm going to be there. Uh, Shelly and I are looking forward to being there. We're praying for you, praying for those who are going to be there, and what God's going to do that, that weekend, because it's going to be very, very special, not just between the two of you, you and your spouse, but between us and the Lord and those who are coming with a very important message for us and our marriages. So I hope that you will invest in your marriage, in your relationship. You will be glad you did. Of all the things we spend our money on, and listen, we are not making a penny on this, just in case I have to say that. What we are asking of you is less than what we are putting out to make this happen. So this is a great opportunity, and I, I just wanted to take that moment to impress that upon you. And if I have any kind of juice, I just I want you to drink it now. Drink it all and come to the retreat. It's going to be great. Well, we're in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 17 and in the life of David, particularly 1 Samuel chapters 21 to 31. We're introduced to David in chapter 16. He is a young man, a young boy. By the way, he becomes the king of the tribes of Israel at the age of 30. This we're told in 2 Samuel. At 30. So everything that happens between chapter 16 and chapter 30, <laughs> I mean his age at 30, and 2 Samuel concerns his life. And he's a young man, he's a young boy, so young that when the prophet Samuel, the last of the judges, a real reformer in Israel, a fresh wind of God among his people, when God speaks to Samuel and says, I want you to go down to Bethlehem because I am going to show you who the next king is going to be, the second king, because the first king is Saul. The first king. Prior to that, judges had really been the leaders in Israel. 
and they weren't too hot. And we, well, I'm not going to say anything about current politics, but And so Samuel goes down to Bethlehem to the house of Jesse, and he, he observes all of Jesse's sons, and he says, are there not any more? And Jesse says, well, I do have one other son, my youngest, and he's out taking care of the sheep. Now, just ponder that for a moment. He wasn't even, in his father's eyes, in human eyes, in the estimation of the head of the household, not even worthy of being invited to the party. And yet it is he whom God anoints through Samuel to be the king of the tribes of Israel. He sees something in his heart, in his, his love, his passion for the Lord. And that's why, by the way, I have a passion for young people, and you ought to too. God, God does something in our hearts when we can see clearly and when we're not jaded by life and its pleasures and its distractions, when our idealism has not been worn to nothing. It's at those times that there are patterns and commitments made that can last a lifetime if they're fed and nourished. So when we follow the the story of David, we return to the events of the tribes of, of the nation Israel and their king Saul, and they are scared poopless by the Philistines. Notice the alliteration there of peas. And Saul whom we're told is the most handsome, he's head and shoulders above any of the others. He's scared. The Philistines are his number one fear. And they've dug a trench. And they're trembling in their trenches. And David comes out, he brings lunch. His father sends David to take care of the sheep, and now he says, take lunch to your big brothers. And David is in the process of doing that, and he hears the reviling words of the champion of the Philistines, a Goliath of a man. He towers above everybody, and he talks smack to the Israelites like you have never heard, even if you're an NBA fan. And David hears this, and he says, you can't talk about God that way. You can't talk about his people that way. He says, I'll go out and meet him. I'll go out and face him. 
And Saul tries to arm him to put his battle armor on. And David says, man, I can't even move in this stuff. Now that tells you how big Saul is. And Saul's afraid. But David is good with a slingshot. He's nimble. He picks up five stones. And with one, he fells Goliath, and then he takes his own sword and chops his head off. And as we read in chapter 17, verse 54, he takes his head and his armor. Now, how many of you would think to do that? It's gruesome, isn't it? Boy, we are just so refined. You know, <laughs> we are. We're civilized. You know, we put on deodorant every day. <laughs> we have our Kleenex, our makeup. And yet we're not refined inside. That's what Jesus said. And we find that what David did is he took the head, we're told in verse 54, and his armor, and it says he took his head, the head of the Philistine to Jerusalem, and his armor to his tent. And I told you last week, that's really an intriguing verse. And just so we can connect to the worship, I want to give you a little clue that that has to do with the presence, his sense of the presence of God. Well, what's striking about David in this whole series that we're calling Learning to Sing in the Desert is that David is elevated. He's chosen by God. He fills the champion of the Philistines. The people rejoice. The king rejoices. I mean, if a kid had removed your greatest fear, that is a happy day for you. And it's not only a happy day for the king, but it's a happy day for all the people. And the prince, the king's son, his heir apparent, comes to David with his sword, his belt, his bow, his robe. He takes it off, and he puts it on David as an honor to him, and maybe more. And the king says, no, no, young man, you're not going back to your household in Bethlehem, to your father Jesse and your brothers. You're going to live right here with me in the king's court. And he marries David into his own family. Into his own family. He becomes the king's son-in-law. And he puts David over the mighty men of Israel. And David begins to win battles for the people, for the king, above all for God among the people. And they begin to sing his praises. He is a local national hero. Not bad for a shepherd boy. And we're told again and again, God is with David. 
In fact, the book of Samuel insists we know the reason for David's success in all he did, for God was with him. And this is the amazing thing. Just as suddenly, everything crashes, crumbles, and begins to fall apart. Why? Because of fear. Because of fear. Saul feared the Philistines until he had a bigger fear, and that was David. Saul, if you will, transferred his fear of the Philistines to David because he was threatened by David just as he was threatened by the Philistines. Fear can ruin everything, or fear can fix everything. Saul fears people. David fears God. Proverbs 29.25 really sets this forth succinctly. And I should say that it's interesting because when you read Proverbs 29, verse 25, and this is what it says, the fear of man lays a snare. In other words, the fear of people, the fear of human things. But whoever trusts in the Lord is safe, literally set upon a high place which is a stronghold, a bulwark, a tower, a safe place. Now that's a proverb, that's a principle, that is a truth, and it echoes through Scripture. Trust not in chariots, trust not in horses, trust not in sword and bow, trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord in all your ways, and he will make straight your paths. But what is interesting about this in Proverbs is that a crucial truth of wisdom, the wisdom of Israel, the wisdom of God, is this, and it's stated five different times in Proverbs, in the Psalms, even in Job, and it goes basically like this. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now, we've all known fear, and we can't quite put this idea of fear of the Lord with our experience of fears, because when we experience fears, we tend to want to run. We take flight, if not physically and geographically, emotionally. So how is it that we are to fear the Lord? The whole notion of trusting him and drawing near seems uh, counterintuitive. But if you think of fear this way, take the emotion out of it. When you fear something, you prioritize that fear. That's the most important thing on your mind and heart. It's number one. 
In fact, a fear can take the place of everything else in your heart. And so when they say, fear the Lord, the sense is not so much emotional retreat, but priority of place. Give the Lord the primary attention of your life. Now, that comes into play very practically in our life because we're so distracted and occupied by other things, and then we come here and we worship, and we get to that place where we're saying, in your presence. And even then, even at that moment, sometimes we're not there. That's what brought me, that made the connection here for me, is we're, we're elsewhere. Even when we come intentionally, deliberately, physically, we get dressed up, we drive in the car, we get out of the car, we come in here, we sit down, we, we do all of that stuff, and then we're not here. His presence can't even occupy us when we come to worship Him. We're not engaged. Our body does not say, I worship you. We're casual. We're relaxed. We're, we're at the theater. We're observing. We're noticing other people. Our hearts haven't even imagined that the, la the Lord is before us. He is present. This is the time when we come together and we say, you are Lord. And those songs express the worship of our hearts. Or they ought to. Now think about this as we look at, le at the life of David in contrast to Saul. Saul fears people. It's his great fear. The Lord takes second place in his life. Even when he's confronted, as we saw last week, and I'll remind you of the verses, in chapter 15, the chapter just before God speaks to Samuel and said, I'm done, he says, I'm done with Saul. Go down to Bethlehem. I'm looking for someone of a better heart, a purer heart, an honest heart. Nobody's perfect. David was not perfect. But in chapter 15, Saul has once again explicit defiance, disobedience of what Samuel had told him to do, which was the command of the Lord. And Saul didn't do it. And Samuel came down. It's, it, it's almost humorous. If you haven't read chapter 15, read it. Saul's trying to deny his disobedience because he was told to destroy everything because they were the enemies of his people. There was a history here. And while 
Saul's denying it, he can hear the cattle lowing that he didn't destroy. He goes, Saul, what? What? You're telling me that you did what the Lord told you, but I hear the cows in the background. And then Saul repents or expresses, he repents, he says, I've sinned. I've transgressed the commands of God. Verse 17, 24 and 30 are the key verses. Because Samuel says to Saul, you are little in your own eyes. Are you not the king, the anointed of God over the tribes of Israel? And he says, I've sinned. I've transgressed the commands of God, for I feared the people. There it is, verse 24. I feared the people. I was afraid of what they would think. I was afraid of them. And even in verse 30, Saul says to Samuel, please, go back with me. See, they've been out on the battlefield. So now go back with me. Honor me. Honor me, Samuel, before the people. Why? Because he's afraid of what they'll think if Samuel isn't at his side. Even then, he's still got his mind on what's going to happen to Saul. David, on the other hand, could sing in the desert because he feared God alone. And God was his light, his salvation, and stronghold. Last week we looked at Psalm 27. I was so glad that, that uh, Brian put it up as a part of kind of attuning our hearts for worship. In Psalm 27, verse 1, a psalm that I believe was written in this period of time, especially associated with the events that we're going to look, like, look at next week. But I want to bring it into view now because it helps us to understand how I'm going to justify to you some of the heart that David has and explain verse 54. He says in Psalm 27, 1, he starts off, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? That's the difference between Saul and David. I was a Saul. I still, in some ways, just like you, have fears. I was insecure and fearful. But what I want to impress upon you, even as I hope I impressed upon you last week, is when you put the Lord first, you put his love and his command to love others as yourself first in your life. That is a principle. That is the overarching principle. And I don't want to preach a sermon on this 
as I did last week, but I want to call it to mind because when we're afraid, we are afraid. <laughs> there are threats. There are dangers. We can begin to ruminate. That is, we can ponder. Sometimes we can't even get it off our minds. The implications, the ramifications, the outcomes, the dangers, the way things can go sideways and blow up in our face. And sometimes, if not now, some of us are immobilized in our faith, at least, by the fears that we have about things in our world today. And that's why I want to emphasize what I'm trying to emphasize this morning about love the Lord your God and your neighbor as yourself. That has liberated me over the years. Here's how it works for me. As soon as I start to love the Lord, it starts to break up that fear, that focus on fear and putting my focus on the Lord, just as David did. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is my stronghold. Of whom shall I be afraid? And I don't even know in all situations how to fix things. But I know that I can't even think about fixing things or doing what I have some power to do, even if I don't have all power to fix things the way I would like. If I can recover my sanity through putting my eyes on the Lord, fear will immobilize you in a way that just disembowels your ability to think straight. So as I begin to love the Lord, I begin to figure out how to enthrone him in my life. Because if you enthrone him, you'll dethrone that fear. And then, even though there may be a lot of moving parts to how I'm going to tackle what frightens me, or what threatens me, or what frightens or threatens what I have responsibility for, I begin to act in love. Because in every situation you and I face, there is nothing you can do that you cannot do better in love. People are always involved. And the Lord says, love your neighbor as yourself. And when you have an attitude of love toward the people in the situation, or if they aren't in the situation that frightens you, they're in the situation of your life. Sometimes we go home from the office or from work or from school or from whatever the thing is, and we're frightened because of what has gripped our hearts, and we take it out on the people in our lives. But if we were acting in God's love, we would begin to act in love toward the people around us, even in the situation we are in the moment. And I'll tell you, when you take control of your life like that, because you can't change everything else, but you can change your heart. And you will always be a force for good, a, vo a force for things constructive, in the moment, in your situation, with the people around you. 
whether it's the people that have to do with what frightens you or, or doesn't. And then when you begin to step out and act in faith and serve the Lord in that way, you're going to see things happen, and you'll know that you are acting in a constructive way. You may not be able to fix everything, but you can act in faith and fix what you can. You can make a difference. And I'll tell you, that's a much better place to be. But you'll grow in your faith. You'll see the, the Lord work. Sometimes our fears are just puffs of smoke on the horizon anyway. And in the meantime, you won't have made things worse, and you'll have been constructive. I hope I made myself clear. Saul sought his kingdom. David sought God's. In chapter 20, which is just ahead of the events that we're looking at in chapter 17, particularly verse 54, things have evolved as they're crumbling. But I have told you that Saul is a frightened man. And David is a threat to him. He's at a banquet. Next week, I'll show you. Uh, you won't want to miss this. We'll cover some of the places David has been in this period of time. But at the end of chapter 19, David flees. I told you he flees the court. He flees the land. And he even will flee the country. But he flees to Samuel and Ramah. But then he returns to Gibeah to meet with Jonathan, Jonathan, the king's son. And at one point in chapter 20, Jonathan is at a banquet with his father. And his father is so racked with paranoia and suspicion, he thinks everything is a conspiracy against him. Not only has Milcah, the wife of David, helped him as David escape, but now he's convinced that Jonathan is against him, and in foul-mouthed rage, you can read this in verses 30 to 33, they tamp down the Hebrew a little bit, but you can still get the idea. In foul-mouthed rage, Saul says, you've thrown away your legacy, you've thrown away your chance at becoming king. So you see what's at stake? What he's saying is, Jonathan, I wanted you to be my successor. And if you're helping David, you're destroying my plans for our future. You're destroying not only my kingdom, but yours. Saul seeks his own kingdom. Just think, though, if Saul be, would have loved God first and then the people, he'd know how, he'd know peace. You know, sometimes we, we fight God because our own interests, we, we don't trust God enough with our own interests. And Saul was afraid to do that too. But if he could have imagined how God would use him even if he was threatened or his kingship was succeeded, he could have known peace of heart and mind, and his legacy would have been constructed for the people of God. But his pride constantly got in the way. 
Matthew 6, 33 through 34 says, Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore, don't be anxious. Don't be afraid. Don't be full of fear for tomorrow, for tomorrow will take care of itself. That is the difference between a David and a Saul. In 1 Samuel 17, verse 54, David took the Philistine's head and brought it to Jerusalem. That's pretty weird. Jerusalem, Jerusalem didn't belong to the Israelites. There was no temple there. There was no priesthood there. The Jebusites were in control of what we called Jerusalem. It was called Jebus. So what David did was he took the head of the Philistine and a pike, and he went into Jebusite territory, and he put that pike in the ground with the head on it, and he said, what I did to the Philistines in the Lord, I'm coming here to do for the Lord. That was the message. Even as a young man, David had his eye on Jerusalem. You may not know this, but it was David that centralized worship in Jerusalem. As important as Jerusalem is to us, when we think of Israel in the Old Testament, there was no Jerusalem until David established it. He had a heart for putting the worship of God at the center of his people. And it began with his own heart, with his own life. And it was on his heart and his mind when he took the head of the Philistine to Jebus, to Jerusalem. And then we're told he put the armor in his tent. Some think that that was a reference to David's tent. Shepherd boys don't sleep in tents. He had just recently come to this area. He was there to bring lunch for his brothers. He had no tent. The army wouldn't have given him a tent. Shepherds don't sleep in tents because they want to have their eyes on any dangers to the sheep. I believe this refers to his tent, not David's tent, but the Lord's tent. The tabernacle, the word tent means tabernacle. In fact, it's, it's used in Psalm 27. David knew that it was on the Mount of Zion and Moriah that Abraham had gone to take Isaac and God had provided a sacrifice, a lamb, to spare his son. David knew that it was that same area that Melchizedek, as David talks about him in Psalm 110, Melchizedek, the king of Jerusalem, came out and to whom Abraham gave a tithe. David, in fulfillment of Exodus chapter 29, verse 46, I was going to read it, but I hope you'll look it up. God said, I didn't deliver you from, from Egypt, from slavery, just to bring you out into the desert. I brought you out to establish my presence, my worship in your midst. David took that to heart. He took the armor to the Lord's tent 
At Nob, after Shiloh had been destroyed and there was no central worship place, the priesthood had moved to Nob, which is just a couple miles from Jerusalem. And by the way, in chapter 21, it's there that the sword will be found, the sword of Goliath. And he presented the armor there as a tribute to say, it wasn't me, Lord, it was you. It was you in that victory. David sings in the desert, Saul soaks on his throne. What a difference. To sing in the desert, don't seek your, seek your kingdom, seek the Lord's. Seek the Lord's. I'm just so impressed as we were singing in your presence. I thought about David, all the stuff going on around him. And while the Israelites were running down the Philistines, which it mentions just before that, David, David remembered the Lord. Didn't remember it as though he had forgotten, but remembered as remembered always remembered. It means give your attention to. Give your mind to, give your heart to the Lord. That's what it always comes down to. We can't control events, but we can control our faith. What is your faith set on? Is it, is it set on the fears or human devices and contrivances to overcome those things, or is it on the Lord to love him and love your neighbor as yourself so that you can, through the fear of the Lord, gain the wisdom you need to confront whatever that fear presents to you in a way that honors him and fulfills his service. I read this this week, and I've been, I want to share it. It's from Winnie the Pooh. <laughs> what day is today? Asked Pooh. It's today, squeaked Piglet. My favorite day, said Pooh. I've been thinking about that over and over. What, what day is it? What, what day is today? It's today, squeaked Piglet. It's my favorite day, said Pooh. This is the day you've got. This is the day that the Lord has made. This is the day in which his grace is new and abundant. This is the day that you can put your faith in the Lord. You can't put your faith in the Lord yesterday, and you can't yet put your faith in the Lord tomorrow. It's the practices of each and every day, your favorite day, that will prepare you to handle the past and face the future. Will you stand with me? I'm going to pray. You know the drill. I'm going to be up here along with pastors and uh, elders, spouses. If you'd like to pray this morning, and I hope you do, we'll be here. But I want to pray for us now. Will you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we stand before you. We are your people. We are your Israelites today. And there are Davids here in our midst that really you are calling forth to stand up for you, to put you first in their lives.
Father, lead us to points of commitment and strength today, now, that will be the beginning of a lifetime of service for you. This is our prayer, and we pray it in the matchless name of Jesus Christ and all of God's people said. God bless you.